From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Hi everyone, Justin Schreiber here. My guest today is Jim Steele, President of Global Strategic Customers at Salesforce. Before we dive into the interview, I thought I'd share a quick story. I started my career in sales tech at Siebel about 20 years ago. At the time, Siebel was the de facto standard in CRM. I remember one morning coming into work and seeing the USA Today front page, full page ad taken out by a tiny little startup. It featured a school kid at a chalkboard writing the words, I will not let Siebel steal my lunch money, over and over again. Well, that tiny startup was Salesforce.com. I'm embarrassed to admit that at the time, I didn't take them seriously. I didn't take them seriously until they took down a massive deal at Merrill Lynch, one of Siebel's biggest customers. At that point, there was no doubt that Salesforce was not only in the enterprise game, but they were actually winning it. Well, Jim Steele, who at the time was president of Worldwide Sales at Salesforce, was the mastermind behind that deal. On today's episode, he'll take us through the play-by-play breakdown on what happened. He'll also share his approach to supersizing deals. It's a process he's been refining since he was a kid holding down a paper route. So what's Jim's secret? Well, it all comes back to a maniacal focus on the individuals involved in the deal and what matters most to them. Through his experience in operating across a range of countries and cultures, he's tuned his ability to connect with a broad range of people in a meaningful way. Let's dive into the discussion. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Justin. It's great to be part of this. Thank you very much. Jim, we've got a lot of great material to work through. I especially wanted to focus on a couple of amazing deals that you have architected over the course of your career. Before we get to that, though, I had to talk to you about what I thought was a fascinating insight into the hustle that you've exhibited all of your life. And that is the newspaper empire that you built as a kid growing up in the burbs of Philly. Can you tell us what was going on there? When I was about 11, you know, we, I grew up in a very middle-class family. My dad uh, had a pretty modest job at New Jersey Bell Telephone, and I'm one of seven kids growing up. So one of the things I was concerned about was getting all these hand-me-downs from my older cousins and some of the stuff my dad was giving me that I didn't feel was you know, too appropriate for my, my school back then. So I, I went out and started uh, a paper route in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And it started when I was 11 with around 25 households that I'd served the paper to. And I built that to, I think, about 125 over about a three and a half, four year period and was given some kind of award for having built the largest paper route in Bucks County. It was kind of a lot of fun because I 
ended up being kind of the banker for the family. So my brothers and sisters would borrow money for lunch money. My mom and dad would borrow money. And I just, I remember feeling, it was such a gratifying feeling to be doing that for my family and not to be dependent on anyone else, especially with my dad kind of struggling with feeding, you know, seven kids. It was, it was just a really fun experience. And that was kind of my first taste of real business where I'm like, wow, you know, the, the bigger I grow this territory of mine, the more money I'm going to make. And it, it was instant gratification because every Friday, you know, I'd go on my collection route and then come home and my parents would ask me how much I brought home and I'd end up loaning them some money so they could go to the grocery store to get us through the weekend. So you literally were feeding the family to some extent with that paper out of yours. Yes, I'd, I'd say so. I mean, it was it was uh, the between the lunch money and the grocery money. It was definitely something I I did for three or four years and was able to buy my own clothes so I didn't have to rely on the hand-me-downs and it was it was my first taste of true independence. It just felt great. I love the fact that even as a kid, you were thinking about growing your territory and uh, putting food on the table. These are all characteristics, obviously, that would be hallmarks of your career later in life. It just goes to show that that thought process is kind of ingrained in your DNA. Yep, that's where it all began. The Bucks County Courier Times. You started off your career in IBM. IBM is known for having an amazing training program and an amazing sales methodology. What kinds of things did you take away from your time at IBM? Sure. Well, first of all, I graduated in June of 1977 from Bucknell University as a civil engineer. I really was not destined or determined to be a civil engineer. My classmates had voted me as the most likely to succeed as at anything other than civil engineering. So I knew that that was probably not the career path. So instead, I went to Europe to follow my girlfriend to her junior year abroad in Madrid and spent many months really upsetting my parents by not getting a job out of college. And then all of a lot of my friends from Bucknell, some fraternity brothers, they, they all were telling me that, Jim, you have to come to IBM. IBM wants to hire people that have an engineering degree because it's a very technical sale and they feel like you'll be able to relate to it much more with your customers. And I didn't actually start with IBM until February 1st of 1978. So this was what, nine, eight or nine months later after I graduated. And so I, you know, definitely create a lot of anxiety with a lot of, a lot of people in that nine month period. But yeah, IBM immediately puts you into these series of sales schools or, you know, the whole education. It starts with learning about the technology and then it advances to taking what you've learned about the technology and applying it to sales calls and how to make the the perfect sales call and to listen to the customers and listen to their their issues and overcome objections. And I went through training for a year and a half before IBM would even let me meet my first customer. And, and I remember it was such a big deal to finish the sales school with, it was the final sales school where you had to, it was basically all applying 
everything you've learned into these situations, sales situations, and you'd get graded on each sales call. And when I left my office to go to this final sales call, my boss and my boss's boss came to meet with me and they said, look, everything is riding on this final sales school. And if you do average like you've done, you know, with all the technical stuff up until this point, you're going to get a very average territory. And if you do well, you'll get a much better territory. And that was all the motivation I needed. That was a financial motivation to me. And so I ended up finishing first in sales school, which was a very celebrated thing at IBM. Like if you finish first in sales school, you all, it's like your path to the best territory. So they gave me this territory on Wall Street uh, happened to be Manufacturers Hanover Trust, which was had not been an IBM account a year or two earlier. And they put me on it and they said, if you can convert this big Wall Street bank to IBM, you're going to make a lot of money. And so I was a sales rep for five years, all on Manufacturers Hanover Trust. And we grew that account to over $100 million a year with IBM. And that was, that was very lucrative for me. And that launched my career. That's an amazing story. And that notion of big deals will come back again and again throughout your career as you move on to other companies, Reba, obviously Salesforce. One of the other things I know that was really meaningful while you were at IBM is the opportunity to get global exposure, particularly in Asia. Can you talk a little bit about the things that you did globally and why that resonated with you so much? Yeah. When you join IBM, you basically are putting your trust in the company and they are known for IBM, meaning I've been moved. You know, that was kind of the one of the many uh, kind of acronyms that were, were, was used for, for IBM at that point. And that was exciting to me. I always wanted to travel the world. That, that was a big motivation for me to join IBM. And when I first started, I was on Wall Street for 13 years with IBM. Uh, made, you know, worked my way up from sales rep to sales manager to branch manager, where I was managing you know, a couple hundred people, 200 million in revenue. Then because my branch was voted branch of the year, I got selected to go up and be the CEO of IBM's uh, assistant. They called us executive assistants. And I spent a year and a half up there. And unfortunately, it was watching the demise of the IBM as I knew it. It was just a very difficult period in 90, uh, 80, well, it was 90 and 91 and early 92. And it was just very difficult to see what was going on. But anyway, that having learned from that, not to have a bunker mentality where you shut out the outside world, on the contrary, I, I looked at it as that was the best learning experience I could have had. So then from there, I went to Los Angeles to run Southern California for IBM. It was about 3,000 people and about a billion dollars. And that whole experience for those three and a half years in LA was just amazing. It was my first executive job. And then they said, okay, now you've earned the right to have an international assignment. And I'm thinking, wow, this could be London, it could be Paris, it could be Hong Kong or Sydney. And they said, no, it's going to be Tokyo. You're going to go to Japan. And at first I was a little taken back, but it turned out 
I ended up doing two tours of duty there because I really loved the culture and I embraced all the Japanese, but I also had sales responsibility for all of Asia. So I was traveling to all these other places like Sydney and Bangalore and Beijing and Shanghai and all over the entire Asia territory. And it was just such an amazing experience for me. And I, I loved it. And that really gave me an appreciation for different cultures and how to motivate different cultures. You can't apply the American values to selling in Asia. You have to be a great listener. You have to connect with your customers almost on a spiritual and cultural level. That's when I really learned, number one, to focus on you know, listening to your customers. And that's, that was one of my keys to success. So it was a great run at IBM. Mark Benioff hires you to come in and, and build an enterprise sales team. At the moment that you came into Salesforce, were they the juggernaut that we all know and love today? <laughs> uh, just the opposite, actually. When I first left IBM, I went to Ariba as the uh, head of global sales for Ariba, which was the hot internet company you know, of the mid to late 90s. And by... 2000, when I joined them, the kind of shine had worn off and the dot-com bubble was about to burst. And it was just a difficult time. The company stock that had gone up to like $40 billion was in free fall. And we were laying off people. And it just was, for me, it was a good time to leave because I knew it was going to be years of just restructuring and downsizing and layoffs. And so I got a call from John Thompson at Hydrogen Struggles saying, hey, I've got this really great opportunity for you. It's right up your alley. And I'm expecting him to throw out some big tech name. And he said, it's uh, Mark Benioff at, at Salesforce. And I said, wow, of course, I've heard of Mark because he's kind of an outspoken, very bold thinker, visionary. But how big is the company? He said, well, they're going to do $22 million this year. And I said, oh, my God. 22 million. I said, I haven't had a territory, even when I was a sales rep, that was less than 22 you know, million. So that's kind of crazy. And he said, well, I think when you meet Mark, you'll be impressed. Well, I happened to be at the Jersey Shore at that time visiting my family. And I said, yeah, you know, I'll be back to the Bay Area in a couple of weeks. And he said, no, Jim, it can't wait. He said, we need to fly you out. And I said, John, I can't leave my mom and dad and all my brothers and sisters. I'm sorry, but you know this doesn't sound like one that I'm going to jump at. So let's just make it a phone call. He said, well, Mark's a very visual kind of guy. He wants to see you. He wants to see your eyes. He wants to see how you respond to his questions. So he said, we've set up a video conference at the Atlantic City Community College. And he wants to talk to you tomorrow at six o'clock my time, three o'clock California time. And I said, fine. I said, because I'm thinking I can just take my wife out to dinner at the, you know, in the, at the casinos in Atlantic City, and then we can go gamble. It'd be a fun night. So I drag her along with me and we're, we walk into this community college and they put me in some back, you know, conference room. And all of a sudden Mark pops up on the screen my wife's sitting in the back of the room off camera, and I had a two-hour video conference with him that was the most fascinating discussion I've ever had up until that point. 
And he was just talking about the industry and what's happening in the industry and all the the trends that are going on and how Salesforce is going to be one of the top three software companies in the world in the next 10 to 20 years. And that if I get in on the ground floor, it'll be incredibly lucrative for me, but it will change my career path, my trajectory, and it'll make me famous, which I had never really, that was never a big thing for me. But in his view, I was going to be somehow famous. By the end of that two hours, I was so wound up, so excited. My wife equally so. She's, oh my God, this guy is amazing. You, you have to go do this. And so we went to, the, to dinner, then the casinos. I had an amazing night. I go home and tell my family, I think I'm going to this company, Salesforce. And that was in late August of 2002. And so I came in for my first interview when I got back right after Labor Day. That was the first of 35 interviews that Mark put me through. He wouldn't even meet with me until the final, the final interview, the 35th interview was him. The 34th interview was his girlfriend at that time, now his wife, Lynn. He put me through this gauntlet. He had me meet with a psychiatrist, a psychologist. He had me meet with all of his board members, all of his executive team. He even had his golden retriever, Koa, come in and spend some time with me uh, where I was rolling around on the floor of the interview room with his dog. And I didn't know it, but he was looking through the window to see how I was with his dog because it, that was very important to him. And I finally go in to see him in that 35th interview. And he said, okay, well, you're going to be our new president and head of all of sales and all of marketing and all of the partner organization and all of the, the services organization, the consulting organization. And I remember in that final interview, by the way, I wore a Hawaiian shirt, a Tommy Bahama shirt, because I knew Mark was very much into the Hawaiian culture. And he was so impressed that I was not this really buttoned down, stayed, you know, conservative guy from IBM that was a little too rigid. He, he said, wow, you've, you've really reinvented yourself. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's important for survival. And I've been out in California now for two years, three years at that point between IBM and, and Ariba. And I said, I've learned that this is a very, very different culture out here. And you have to adapt to the, to the culture or else you're never going to fit in. So I started my job, my first day. It was October of 2002. And I'm sitting in my office so excited. And Mark walks in and says, what are you doing here? And I said, and I jumped up and I thought he was kidding. So I said, oh, I'm Jim Steele, your new president. And he said, no, no, I'm serious. What are you doing here? And he, he looks around. He says, I don't see any customers. He said, I, Jim, I didn't hire you to be an armchair quarterback. I hired you to be the face of the company, the face of Salesforce in front of all of our customers and partners. So I really don't appreciate you being in the office. <laughs> and the irony was like I was even at IBM that was very headquarters centric and very bureaucratic. I hated being part of that bureaucracy. I was always the guy out with customers, you know, negotiating deals. Same thing at Ariba. 
So I said, Mark, you will never have to give me that warning again. And that started a 13-year nonstop kind of trek around the world where I, I only came back to headquarters basically for company meetings, for board meetings, for executive committee meetings. I knew that Mark, it made him nervous to see me in headquarters. So I made sure that I was reporting to him all the good things that I was doing out with customers. And I became the voice of the customer and he appreciated that. And it worked out pretty well. So yeah, that was my entree into Salesforce. There are a couple of iconic deals that you closed that really changed the game from from Salesforce's perspective. Let's start by talking about the Cisco deal. Tell us a little bit about what was going on at Cisco and and why that was such a pivotal deal for you guys. I remember early on, it was probably like 2004 or five, we hadn't really done much more with Cisco. We weren't really growing Cisco. So they were on my radar as an account we really needed to figure out how to go to them. And the team had told me at the time that they had never gone to the CIO. And, you know, me being at IBM and Ariba, you know, the CIO was always an important part of the sale, especially when it was an enterprise license agreement. You had to get the CIO involved or else you weren't going to get very far because they controlled the budgets and introducing any new technologies. And I remember thinking, okay, we have to get to the CIO. Well, Right about when I was thinking that, Brad Boston, who was the CIO at that time of Cisco, calls Mark Benioff and he says, hey, I'm giving you a warning here. We're going to turn off Salesforce. I just discovered that you guys have infiltrated two of our teams over in Europe, in France, and it's totally unauthorized. It's, it's against our policy we are a Siebel shop and we're going to turn you off. Well, Mark was able to convince him to at least let us come in and talk to him because we'd like to understand his requirements that he didn't think we could meet. So I remember Mark and I went down to see him and he basically read us the riot act. He said, guys, here's what I would need to see if I were ever to make you guys our standard. And he started with security. He said, security is absolutely number one. If you're not as secure as what I have behind my own firewall, I'm not interested in this on-demand approach that you guys have. This was before we were known as a cloud company or a SaaS company. He said, number two, scalability. There's no way, you know, you have a couple hundred users today, maybe. I need to know that you can scale to tens of thousands. I think they had like 20-something thousand salespeople. Third thing is performance. When I hit the enter key, I need to know that I can get a response within a second or so. I can't afford to have my salespeople sitting around waiting for a response time. And then the fourth thing is reliability. He said, if you're up and down and we can't rely on you for 99.999% reliability and uptime, there's no way I'm, I'm making that investment. And then he said, on top of that, I need to know that your solution is customizable. What I'm told is it's all out of the box and I can't really customize it. And we want the Cisco version of Salesforce, not some generic version that everyone else is using. 
And then the last thing is integration. He said, I don't want a standalone solution. I need a solution that integrates with all our other systems, our ERP system from Oracle and all these other systems that we have. I need to know I can pull data in. I'm writing all this down because to me, this is my enterprise playbook. This is exactly the message we need to bring to every CIO. I couldn't have been more thrilled that I'm hearing this. And I said, okay, um, Brad, is there anything else? And he said, yeah, you better be a hell of a lot cheaper than Siebel. And I said, well, that's funny, you know, that you say that. I said, working for IBM all these years, I never sold anything cheaper. I always focused on ROI. I said, how, how much value is it to you if we can get you in and up and running in six to nine months versus what Siebel is known for that could be a year and a half to two years? What value is it to have 80 to 90% adoption rates of all of your users versus all this shelfware where with Siebel, only something like 30% are active users of Siebel. And he said, Jim, I see where you're going. You're trying to use ROI to make your case. And he said, I'm sorry, uh, I'm not going to go there. I will compromise and give you total cost of ownership. So that's the only thing I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about all these hard to prove ROI theories that salespeople are so good at. So he said, look, come back in a month or two and uh, we'll talk. So I went back with Mark and we gathered the whole executive team, Parker Harris on the technical side and with the engineers and said, Can we, how do we respond to all these questions? Jim Cavalieri was our CIO. So we put an amazing response together and we went back and pitched it to Brad like probably almost two months later. And he was blown away. He said, wow. He said, if you really can deliver on these promises, then we'll start to, to look at a bigger deal. And I think the next deal was probably like a million dollars. And then now, and then maybe 5 million. And then ultimately we grew it to a 20 plus million dollar deal. And that was just a huge game changer for us because everyone knew, you know, Cisco was the leader in their market. John Chambers was a iconic CEO, and they were very technical over there. And for them to basically trust us with their solution, their infrastructure to deliver that as a service was just a huge milestone for us with Cisco. That's an awesome deal. I love the backstory too, and everything that led up to that. The deal though that I remember is the Merrill Lynch deal. I was actually over at Oracle at the time, Oracle bought Siebel. I was running the sales organization that sold into financial services. And when word came down that Salesforce had won Merrill, I probably should have sold everything I owned and bought stock in Salesforce. That would have been a really smart move. That was a bellwether deal for you guys. What happened there and how did you get into Merrill? The Merrill deal started with our sales rep, Joe uh, Williams and Dave Rednitsky. And they had been selling to them. They had both worked at Oracle as well, and they had relationships on Wall Street. We had this vision that if we could close a big Wall Street firm, they would all just fall one by one after that. It would be a cascading effect. 
And so they worked their way into the opportunity at Merrill Lynch. And it got us all excited that we could have this perfect solution to replace Siebel. They were, I think, one of Siebel's largest accounts on Wall Street. So we, we were like, wow, we're going to, we, we got we to gotta slay this dragon, you know. And we got a, you know, a, a foothold in there with a small number of users as kind of a test. And then as we started to see some success with it, the customers started to engage our sales VP, who also had been at Oracle for a long time, but he had also been at Siebel. And it got to the point where the customer basically came to me and Mark and said, I don't want to work with this guy. You know, I'll work with someone else, but it has to be an executive in headquarters that Mark trusts. So Mark is like, oh, Jim Steele is going to be your point person. He'll work with Dave and Joe on this deal. And so I started flying to New York a lot to meet with this guy. And then I, his name is John Hogarty. He's really tough. He was known for how tough he was. And we also had many, many resources from Salesforce on this. A guy named Teen Suo, who's now the CEO and founder of Zora, and Jim Cavalieri, and Mark himself, and many others. And we convinced them to come out to meet with Mark in at headquarters. So they came out. We were all sitting in this conference room. They were all in suit and tie, looking like Wall Street bankers. I had a sport jacket on, you know, well, well dressed. And all of a sudden, I get a call from Mark's uh, assistant saying, "Oh, Mark wants you to bring the customers over to Ella's, uh, this great breakfast restaurant in Pacific Heights." near where Mark's house was. And I said, oh, geez. I said, this is not going to go over well with these guys. You know, they've been up since probably 6 in the morning, 5 in the morning from their East Coast uh, you know, time zone. And this was now like 8 o'clock or 8.30. And I said, guys, we have an audible here. It's a change of plans. We're going over to Ella's. Mark has a table there for all of us, and he's really excited. This is his favorite restaurant. They said, Jim, we've already eaten breakfast. We, we were up at five this morning. We ate room service. None of us are hungry. I said, guys, Mark really would appreciate it so much if we all went over there. So we, we all get, you know, in a taxi, no Uber back in those days, and go to this location. And we walk in. Mark looked a little disheveled. He had his Hawaiian shirt on and shorts and and flip-flops and the customers i could just see them tensing up like they weren't going to be happy with this and once we got through kind of the awkward start to this mark basically committed the company resources to turn this into our biggest showcase win customer success story we've ever had and they had all kinds of technical questions i think parker harris was there with us and they drilled us and Mark and Parker did an amazing job. And then by the end of the breakfast, Mark basically said, look, Jim's going to go back to New York with you guys and he'll he'll be there, you know, to work through all the details and we're going to close this deal. Well, many months late, later, we were getting closer to a big deal and the customer said, hey, we want to come back out to meet Mark this time in the office. And this is a very serious conversation. 
And by this time, by the way, Mark had opened up an account at Merrill Lynch in Pacific Heights. He walks in and says, I, you know, I'd like to open up an account. And they put him through the ringer. They're like, oh, well, you know, and Mark, of course, showed up in his flip-flops and his uh, Hawaiian shirt. And they were very dubious of who this character is. And Mark had already had a, a multi-million dollar relationship with Merrill for different parts of the, the business. And they had no record of that. They're like, uh, okay, well, who are you? Give us your name, your address, your phone number. And they keyed it all into their Siebel system and had no, uh, no records of Mark being a customer. And he said, can I see your bank manager? And so they brought over the bank manager and Mark just basically read him the riot act. He said, look, can you use the internet? And the guy said, well, you know, was all like huffy about it. He said, just do me a favor, just key in Mark Benioff, uh, Salesforce. And by this time, you know, we had gone public a, a few years earlier. Mark was already worth a lot of money. And the guys, the guy just turned white, like, oh my God, this is crazy. You know, I'm so sorry, Mr. Benioff. We would love to have your business. And he said, well, you should already know what business you do with me. So why don't you research that and then get back together with me when you're ready to, to talk about me opening an account here. So this was the, the fodder that Mark needed to explain to Merrill that they were not leveraging their resources and they, they had a CRM that wasn't working for them. And they already knew it. So this was just more gasoline on the fire. Oh, and by the way, through that experience, he insisted that he meet with all their wealth management advisors. And one of them was this guy, Pete Arbogast. And Pete was a very sharp financial advisor. And he quickly realized this was his opportunity to make an impression with Mark. And he took on the mantle of gathering all the feedback from the, the wealth advisors on kind of a day in the life of the wealth advisors and how they use technology to access information. And so Mark leveraged his relationship with Pete Arbogast to really understand the day in the life of a financial advisor. And we knew it better than some of the wealth management back in New York knew it. I mean, we, we really had it down. And so Mark held this meeting with all the executives of, of Merrill Lynch well, uh, Wealth Management Division. They all came out to San Francisco. They were all in this conference room. Mark was dressed for you know, to, to close them. And we went through the day in the life, everything we learned, we showed them a demo of how we would deliver the solution to them. And we nailed it. We absolutely nailed it. And the customer is like, okay, well, we are convinced you have the best solution. We think we'll save money with you guys. Our offer was something like 27 million. And by the way, the biggest deal we had done at that point, I think, was somewhere between five and ten million dollars with Cisco before we did the the mega deal with them. But it was Cisco and ADP at that time were were our two biggest customers. So Mark lays his whole plan out. I presented, you know, the proposal, and the customers had some of the financial advisors in there, and they're all saying, "Yes, we want this." But here's the thing: we We'll take your solution, we'll pay you the $27 million, and we'll even add another $10 million for you to build this on-premise. We want this solution on-premise. And 
they gave the reasons why. It was mostly because they wanted control and they, they were still thinking security and they had never done anything outside of the Merrill Lynch firewall. And I was still like, wow, $37 million. This is unbelievable. It was a three-year deal. You know, I was ready to raise my hand and say, we'll, we'll take it. Mark says, no, I'm sorry. We cannot do that for any company. We are a one-to-many solution. That's our whole principle behind our company. We are taking and leveraging infrastructure and spreading the cost amongst all our customers in this multi-tenant solution. And if I agree to do this for you, it'll just open the floodgate for every big company is going to go that way because they don't know any better because that's all they've done. And he said, and then what will happen is We'll have over, oversold you and underdelivered like every software solution out there that's on premise, and you will be very disgruntled with us, and we will never keep you happy. We'll never make you happy. We will always be in this perpetual cycle of needing to deliver new releases, and it'll never meet your expectations. He said, but if you're an on-demand, I think at that point we we're calling it you know, SaaS or cloud, with that solution, this is 2007, we can deliver upgrades to you and our entire customer base overnight and not have you worry about the infrastructure to support it, not worrying about the release level you're on, not worrying about rolling out this new functionality. We, all, we do that overnight. And this delayed the deal three months where they could not believe we were turning down the biggest deal in the history of Salesforce by an order of magnitude. They just thought they'd wait us out. They said, okay, well, you know, we're not going to do this. And this was, this was now in uh, probably November on January 31st. So the whole month of January, I basically camped out at Merrill in New York with, with my team and we closed that deal late in the day on the 31st of January, the final day of our fiscal year. And we, we, well, we got to an agreement and we took the customer out to dinner and we had a handshake agreement, but I had to go and just run it by Mark because I think I ended up cutting a couple million dollars out of the deal, the 25 million. Um, and then I, I needed to ramp it. They weren't going to do 25 divided by three. They were going to do a smaller amount year one, then ramp to a bigger amount. And what was important to me and Salesforce was the exit price, because that became the steady state price that we were going off of. And that, that I believe was about 11, 11 or $12 million. So I remember after dinner, going back, getting on my, my phone, my, I think I had a Blackberry at that point, And I called Mark. And I walked around the block at, at 57th Street in front of the Four Seasons between Park Avenue and, and Fifth Avenue. I'm walking in circles for about 45 minutes explaining this deal to Mark. He ultimately supported it. I called the customer, told him we had a deal. We got it all signed before, you know, before midnight, New York time. And... It was the start of like the biggest celebration I think we ever had at Salesforce. Like it was, it just opened up all these opportunities for us with any financial 
And we just started knocking down financial institutions, not only on Wall Street, but in Japan and in Europe and all over the world that we had never been able to sell to before. And then when we announced it on our end of the fiscal year earnings call, it had such a huge impact on the stock price. Everyone's like, wow, this is this is a milestone. This is a turning point for Salesforce. And sure enough, it, it was. And we all felt like heroes because we were doing something that was basically not ever expected. And all the naysayers out there were like, there's no way they'll ever crack Wall Street. And the Merrill Lynch deal was that that deal. And it was just so exciting. And, and then we camped out with Merrill Lynch for you know month after month after month throughout the whole deployment. You couldn't tell who was Salesforce and who was Merrill Lynch on the, the implementation team. We lived with them and held their hand, made sure that everything worked as needed. And today, Merrill Lynch, Bank of America is a huge customer of, of Salesforce. And it's I don't know how much they spend, but I guarantee it's an exponential amount over that amount that we closed, you know, in 2007, 2008. So that was, that was probably one of the highlights of my career in closing that deal. As I think about the Merrill deal, as I think about the Cisco deal, maybe even going back to your days building that newspaper empire, it seems like for you, no is the starting point to what ultimately becomes a great deal, both for the customer and for the company that you're representing. I know this doesn't happen by accident. I love a, actually a quote by John Wooden. He said, to win takes talent, to repeat takes character. What is the philosophy that you've embraced that allows you to accomplish these things? Number one, you have to have a maniacal obsession with customer success. And that means never taking your customer for granted. It's great to be paranoid. It's great to be confident, but it really is a detriment if you're cocky and arrogant. And there's so many salespeople that are cocky and arrogant. And you hear about you know stories from different companies. I won't use their names, but their customers tell them, and I hear this from these customers all the time, that the only reason they're buying from them is because they have the best technology and they want to be, they want to be with the company that has the best technology. So ultimately the best technology wins, but they would tell you that the first chance they get to find a competitor that can do the same thing or better, they're gone, they're out of there. there. There's no loyalty to that company. And it really pisses them off when salespeople uh, right on through the CEO is very pushy and arrogant and cocky. So that's number one. Second thing, I tell salespeople this all the time. If you approach a sales opportunity as a transaction, your goal is to close a deal. You'll have a tougher time closing that deal than if you create in your mind, think of that as a customer journey, not a transaction. You have to build a relationship that will persevere the ups and downs that always happen in a relationship, whatever the relationship is. And certainly it's true with, with a customer-vendor relationship. You have to build a bond with that customer and you have to have them emotionally connected to you and want, want you to win. And you know that comes from being you know, humble and hungry. Um, it comes from a lot of things. And I'll, I'll finish the rest of my list. I would say number three is think big. A lot of salespeople tend to think too small. 
And if you really want to do something that's a game changer for you and your career, you have to look at these big deals as being like the opportunity. If, if you get in front of the CEO of that company on an elevator, you should not shy away. You should be blurting out, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Mrs. So-and-so, I am so excited. I've been working with your company and I, I've been listening to your earnings calls and your speeches. And I know uh, the top imperatives that you have and you rattle them off and then you say, I know and I'm confident we have a solution to help you further those imperatives and address your biggest challenges. Because if you're not focused on the CEO's biggest challenges, then you're, you're playing small ball. And that never, that's never going to result in, in a big deal at kind of the end of that, that journey. And by the way, the journey doesn't end. The transaction might end, but the journey never ends. The fourth thing I'd say is tell stories. Don't sell. You, if you're genuine, if you have this emotional connection and you're sharing stories with the customer, it's so much easier for them to listen to you than when you're just selling them. And they know when you're selling them. And, and you'll know, too, if they kind of recoil a little bit, they're a little uncomfortable. If they're uncomfortable, sorry, if you're uncomfortable, you know they're going to be uncomfortable. So don't just go through your corporate pitch or your deck. Like, t tell a story and how that story relates to them. And that's using references, basically. And then the other thing I'd say that Mark Benioff taught me more than anything was to embrace change and to kind of reinvent yourself. You know, my 23 years at IBM, IBM kind of indoctrinated this whole focus on us following in the footsteps of our forefathers at IBM for 75 years. Every CEO of IBM had followed the same path. They all started as a, a salesperson and worked their way up. And we knew what that career path was the day we joined IBM. We knew exactly what it was going to be. And we had to kind of adhere to all of the IBM ways of doing things. And with Mark, he would always kind of come into my office and drop these suggestions. And I kind of took them as suggestions, which I, I learned later that they were really orders, not suggestions, because what would happen is he'd get very frustrated because he thought he was being direct. Maybe I, I should have interpreted as him being direct. But I was like, oh, geez, some of these ideas are so off the wall. Like, I, I didn't learn any of these things to do at IBM. So I was kind of, in my own way, I was being a passive resistant recipient of these messages Mark was, was leaving me. And he would come back a week or two later and say, hey, you know, how are we doing on that uh, plan that we laid out? And I realized then that it wasn't a suggestion. This was, this was basically his order. And I'm like, Mark, are you serious? Like, are we, you really want me to do this? And that, that's when I'd have to you know, tell him why I was resisting. And I'd use my conventional wisdom that I had built up over many years at, at Salesforce. Some of that had been you know, kind of scrubbed off at Ariba, but not the way Salesforce did. And then he looked at me and said, Jim, I don't get it. What's the downside of you doing this? Am I asking you to commit a crime? No. Am I asking you to hurt someone physically or, you know, murder someone? No. If it's not an issue of uh, integrity, of law, of, you know, all these other moral objections, then look, why don't you give it a try? 
And if it doesn't work, guess what? You can always revert back to what we were doing before. But I promise you, you're going to learn things by, by embracing a different perspective that will change your thinking. And that's what I'm trying to do. I need you to change your thinking. And so I went from being the most passive resistant guy to being, holy crap, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to lose my job if I don't change. So I, I went from that to like enthusiastically embracing all these, what I thought were crazy ideas, but I'm like, hey, let's give them a try. And I went out and did a number of these things that Mark was basically telling me to do. And I'll be darned if those ideas didn't create some of the biggest changes and successes that we had at Salesforce. And, you know, I'd say eight or nine of the things that he was telling me to do that I would have probably blown off with uh, if, if he hadn't been so persistent turned out to have changed the game for us, whether it was an organizational decision or the way we go to market with uh, customers, the way we're doing deals, hiring people that I would have never considered hiring, but they brought a new perspective. So that was number five. And then the, the sixth thing that could be the most important out of all of them is this term that Mark ended up coining at Salesforce. I would always say, hey, you know, I go through this process with customers, whether it's in a customer call or a journey with a customer where you listen, then you validate and inspire. And Mark called it LVI. So it became LVI at Salesforce, but it served me very well. So the listen part is obvious. You know, you just, you spend a lot of time doing your due diligence, learning everything you can about a business and earning the customer's respect and confidence that, wow, you really know what you're doing here. Like this, this is great. You know our business. And so you've already earned credibility with them. And then the validate part is the way I would play back to the customer the things that I heard from them. So I'd use their, their terminology, their phrasing, and I would play back. I said, I want to make sure that I really understand what you're telling me and what you're asking for. And the validation part was very important because the customer was being drawn in. They're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting invested here because this, this guy's really paying attention. You know, he's, he's not just trying to shove some solution down my throat. He's, he putting, he's putting it all in context of my, my business. And the third part of that was inspire. So now that you've validated and the customer's now nodding and saying, yes. Yes, thank you. You, you. you got it. Now the inspire part is, okay, now that I've earned your, your trust and credibility, let me tell you how we're going to meet your, your needs, your sol solution. And you'd lay out, whether it's in the form of a demo or the proposal or just talking through the key points, how you're going to deliver a solution for the customer and how... Others have done similar things, although they've all had different, you know, customized needs. And you have to let them know that their, their asks are very unique to that company. But the inspire part was putting into a story or a demo or a proposal or, you know, a sales meeting with them, how you're going to meet their needs and getting them to say, yes, that's exactly what we need. So that's the process I've always gone through. And I, every time I, I tell 
the salespeople, if you're not listening enough, if you're talking too much, you're not selling when you're talking. You think you're selling, but you're basically putting the customer on their heels now, like, geez, how do I shut this guy down? And you don't want that. You want them to, to help you formulate that, that solution. You got to stroke their egos, you know, not, not do it. You don't want to patronize a customer because they can see right through that. If you say, I'll give them all these platitudes that are not genuine, but you, by giving them the voice to give you their input, you are embracing the customer and you're making them feel good that their opinion matters because that's really at the end of the day what they care about they don't want to give up all their power they want some power and you got to make them feel like they got that power in their own way they're kind of manipulating you to kind of come come about it from their perspective so th those are the things that have served me very well kind of what i've always talked about as my keys to success and all of those skills were fine-tuned at at Salesforce. Jim, those are six great points. And I know that they were forged over a career of selling and across probably thousands of deals, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Thank you so much for packaging those up and sharing them with us. By the way, I would say billions of dollars worth. I, billions I of if, dollars. I think if I looked at my 42 year, you know, career as a sales person, uh, I would say, yeah, billions for sure. So, but that probably speaks more to my age and maybe some of these you know, success factors thrown in there. I love it. You're never going to be accused of playing small ball. Well, Jim, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Justin, thank you for the questions and thanks for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.